A gifted pianist with criminal aspirations, James Blake found himself hitchhiking north in the summer of 1956. Fresh off a two-and-a-half-year stint in a Florida lockup, Blake was in the wind, dressed in a set of ill-fitting prison-issued duds with five dollars to his name. He initially had designs on catching a ride to Atlanta. That was until what Blake described as a big-ass Chrysler bound for Charleston pulled to the side of the highway. The driver, a Mount Pleasant shrimp boat captain by the name of Stoney, was returning from a failed trip to Jacksonville to win back his estranged wife. As tends to be the case, misery loves company. Stoney, who Blake referred to as, quote, a bitter, somber black man, offered to take the hitchhiker as far as he could go. Then, like any polite host, he offered Blake a slug from the handle of Canadian club he kept in the glove box and a cold beer from the cooler in the floorboard. It had been more than two years since he had had a proper drink, and by the time they reached the turnoff for Atlanta, Blake had decided to accompany his new pal all the way to Charleston. Perhaps a change of scenery would do him good. As the long drive dragged on, Blake plied his boozy wheelman with a few bennies he received as a farewell gift from a fellow inmate, just enough to keep Stoney sharp and able to navigate the country roads. Traveling through the deep south in the 1950s, Stoney must have seen a white companion like Blake as a bit of an insurance while stopping in areas inhospitable to a lone black motorist. Making a brief detour at a roadside church picnic, Blake found himself pulled into a celebration complete with rhythm and blues and an improvised dance floor. Returning to the car, Stoney had taken note of Blake's awkwardness with women, asking, you don't dig broads, do you? Blake deflected, but both men knew what they were. Stoney was a black man trying to make it home alive. Blake was a gay ex-con trying to keep both points a secret. Together, they were headed for Charleston. The smell of fish and salt water greeted Blake as they reached the Carolina coast in the darkness of night. Crossing over into Mount Pleasant, Stoney escorted his companion straight to the wharf where the two managed to grab some rest rocked to sleep by the slight rise and fall of a shrimp boat. With sunrise came the realization that Blake had to find a place of his own. Stoney dropped him off downtown, and the two said their goodbyes. It was only a few hours before Blake was taken into custody for casing possible targets for his next robbery. After a brief interlude at the local Skid Row, Blake pocketed the 83 cents collected that night by the reverend who oversaw the halfway house and, in his own words, went looking for trouble. What he found was Dan Cooper, a lover and antagonist who would come to control Blake's every move for the next several months. According to a letter written by Blake, July 26, 1956, Cooper owned and operated a nightclub called the Magnolia Room, which is described as a regular haunt of the racier element of Charleston aristocracy. According to Blake, Cooper was 38 years old, stocky, muscled, rugged ugly, with an unsettling charm that comes from a poetic, perverse, avidly curious mind. Disturbing because while his talk is compelling, fantastic, hypnotic, I can never be sure how much of it is mendacious and satirical. Despite growing up in Chicago by way of Edinburgh, Blake soon became familiar with the old southern trait of having, quote, perfected the fine art of lying with flair. With enough cash in his pocket to cover one beer, Blake slipped into the Magnolia Room and aced an audition to become the club's regular piano player. 
He described the bar as a reproduction of a Carolina-style patio, common brick and wrought iron, deep leather booths, murky darkness, with a discreet sign outside to lure in customers. As Blake familiarized himself with the new surroundings, he was taken under the wing of the bar's proprietor. In his personal correspondence, Blake identified his new employer and soon-to-be lover as an old-money Charlestonian. New to the city, Blake had begun to cozy up to a pair of actors from Dock Street Theater, but Cooper would have none of it. As he began to groom his new pianist to be a suitable Charleston idol, Cooper secreted Blake away to a secluded island off of Folly Road. Blake would spend the steamy summer evenings in a former slave quarters, separate from Cooper's main house on the island. It was here that Cooper and Blake began a heated affair that would soon devolve into petty jealousy and violence. It was an excursion into eroticism along roads I never saw on any map. The calm, steady, dispassionate degradation and debasement, sure, strong, relentless. When it was done, this silent, contemptuous, and curiously onanistic performance, the first daylight was rising over the water. I had been coolly employed, crumpled, and discarded like a Kleenex. Blake would later attempt to reframe his unflattering descriptions of Cooper, instead offering up a sort of preemptory excuse for the man he would come to view as a threat. Deep down, it seemed that Blake began to view his new lover with a sort of sympathy usually possessed by someone attempting to free a wild animal from a trap. Only did they themselves fall prey. What I feel is beyond shame or guilt, or even embarrassment. I know that his homosexuality is like my own, and that it is a matter of attraction between two masculine minds, and not a tinsel thing in which one of them must pretend to be a woman. Cruel or not is irrelevant. There is a vast uneasiness and torment in the man, a bottled loneliness. Of course, I know that the desperation implicit in this kind of alliance will strangle it as a matter of course, and that will be the end of it. Meanwhile, there are the times when we talk and no mutual understanding. For me, Slippery and rackety as I am, it has been a revelation to find someone so obsessed with honesty. Although Blake claimed in his writing to be obsessed with honesty, it appears that he was willing to exaggerate the story of his time in Charleston. Through his own personal research and investigation, archivist and head of special collections at the College of Charleston, Harlan Green, has uncovered the truth about the man Blake referred to as Dan Cooper. I think James Blake, um, you know, perception of Charleston are so interesting and so articulate and coming from a source that we don't have, you know, that, that is matched with no one else is sort of commenting on gay life in Charleston, you know, in the 20th, in the mid 20th century. But what I find unfortunate with James Blake is that he seemed to need to romanticize, um, you know, Charleston to some extent. So he was actually having an affair with a man who was not a blue blood. You know, true, they lived on an outskirt on Charleston. They lived on, on the Folly Road somewhere, you know, which you talked about, and, you know, sort of being cocooned out there and brought down to the city of Charleston. But Dan Cooper, um, 
you know, is not a blue blood. The fellow that he really did have an affair with was basically just a blue collar kind of guy in town um, that ran the bar. Um, and I kind of, and I don't understand why, like, felt the need to romanticize to some extent, you know, and glorify the man that he was having an affair with. Did he fall under the spell of Charleston's grand elite aristocratic kind of world as well? Blake's inconsistent descriptions of his relationship with Cooper, as well as his decision to aggrandize Cooper's status in Charleston, paint an unhealthy picture of the power dynamic the two shared. Unable to publicly take part in a romance with another man, Cooper seems to have redoubled his efforts in the opposite direction. He would assert his control over his romantic life by hiding away his lover on an isolated stretch of the coast. And Blake was content with being kept. Right, and again, you know, there's, there's some kind of sadomasochistic kind of relationship going on there as well, too. Um, and so then, and I don't know, psychologically, does that satisfy that, feed into that? Obviously, one's got the power and one does not have the power in that relationship, and Blake does not have the power. Um, you know, does it somehow glorify or intensify the relationship, you know, by building him up to others, by saying he's a much more powerful man, you know, and he's much more elite, and he's, you know, got a position in society, which again diminishes Blake. So, you know, there might be some kind of, some kind of psychological kind of uh, aggrandizement or actually minimizing of himself going on, you know, spinning out this character, but there is no doubt, I don't think, that they did have a sexual and kind of an employer relationship. Despite whatever connection Blake felt with the man he called Cooper, it wasn't enough to keep his eye from wandering. By the end of September, as Cooper was called away to Miami, Blake fell in with a trio of Navy musicians. Of particular interest to Blake was a gentle trombonist from New York with big brown eyes that would prove to be Blake's undoing. In October of that year, Blake began referring to Cooper as simply the owner. Despite still living on the island and performing at the Magnolia Room, Blake's relationship with the brown-eyed trombonist continued to sour things with Cooper. It appears the only thing keeping him around was Blake's newfound affection for the low country. I'm trying to keep the owner happy, and at the same time trying to chase a brown-eyed trombone player from the Navy. There's been a certain degree of success in the chase. Thing is, if I keep on as I'm going, I know Dan will flip and I'll be out. I've thought of moving into town, but every morning when we come back from there, the stars are overhead within reaching distance. The water stretches into silver infinity. The wind sighs in the palmettos. How can I leave? It's lonely, lonely as blazes. Dan spends maybe an hour or two with me when we come home, for the rest of the time, I'm alone. Blake would soon reach his breaking point. Cooper had become unsettlingly cold to Blake and continued his regular practice of firing off his pistol on the island. The two were staying drunk all the time and a bad break was on the horizon. Met with violence the few times he told Cooper about his wishes to leave the island for good, Blake eventually relocated to a downtown hotel for his final weeks in Charleston. He would return to Florida in a failed criminal career on November 22, 1956, but not before writing a friend at Dock Street Theater to share one final plea for Charleston's gay community, which he feared to be turning in on itself. 
your attitude, seems almost a way of life, is apparently compounded of pale green enamel, meringue, and mustard gas. Seemingly, you have marooned yourself on an arid island with a number of other castaways, joyless and juiceless, but utterly, oh utterly, comme il faut. And there you sustain yourselves by nibbling on one another in modish cannibalism. So, a plea. Less cleverness, more kindness, for the good of the breed, such as it is. I think he's trying to say, don't be a, you know, in, in the vernacular, don't, you know, don't be a bitchy queen, you know, try to be more human. I think there's some references in there, too, you know, don't feel like that there's a stereotype of gay behavior that you have to um, adhere to because you now are defining yourself as gay or, you know, whatever, whatever noun or adjective they're using at the time. And obviously Blake himself, you know, breaks that stereotype. You know, here he is a petty thief, a musician, you know, he's not, he doesn't seem to fit into a rigid role as how in the 1950s, you know, America saw gay men. While Blake quickly returned to an ill-fated life of crime, spending 13 of the next 20 years behind bars, another recent Charleston transplant committed to his newly adopted home. Jack Dobbins, a chemical company executive in his late 20s, arrived in Charleston around the same time as Blake. Although the two men seemingly shared little in common, Blake and Dobbins were restricted to the downtown clubs and bars that served as safe havens for the gay nightlife. Blake would die February 19, 1979, succumbing to cancer in a hospital in Arlington, Virginia. But while he was able to escape Charleston with his life, Dobbins would not be so lucky. This concludes part one of a three-part series for the Charleston City Paper titled A Slow Burn, How the Candlestick Murder of 1958 Struck Fear in Charleston's Gay Community. This episode was written, edited, and scored by myself, Dustin Waters, with script supervision by Sam Spence. The part of James Blake was read by Jeff Lown. Special thanks to Harlan Green for appearing on this episode. Please pick up a copy of the City Paper's Pride issue, available September 11th, and visit www.charlestoncitypaper.com for more. Continue following this series in Episode 2, which details the candlestick murder and the resulting trial that shocked Charleston. Thanks for listening.